morning is from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Hear the word of our Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Yeah, <clears throat> just take a minute here while you're all getting settled to thank you uh, for all the gifts and the goodies that you've given to me and my family uh, this Christmas season. Uh, it really is a joy uh, to uh, be cared for as well as, as you do care for me. One request I, do, I have, if, uh, if you notice, I notice, my suit is fitting just a little bit tighter than it was three weeks ago. And um, maybe next year, as much as I love them, maybe next year no cookies or, or pie or, or anything like that for me. Uh, make something I don't like so that my family and my kids eat it and I'm not tempted. That, that would be very loving. Thank you. Uh, uh, but we had a great uh, celebration on Friday evening, I thought. I was very joyful to be with uh, Christ's people Friday, celebrating the reality of Emmanuel, uh, God with us. Uh, it's a blessing that we, we really can't fathom. We can't, we can't search out all the depths of what it means for God to be with us in the birth of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. Um, but we do know that it means he is among us, he's made himself known, he's for us, he's not against us, and he is with us in the ultimate sense, that no matter what we are going through, he's proven himself to be willing and able to walk through it with us. And uh, we see that abundantly in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning we're gonna be looking at and beginning to look at really what is the inevitable consequence of Christmas. What is, what is the result of Emmanuel, God with us, right? You know that familiar verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, right? What is the ultimate blessing of being saved from our sins? Well, it's being brought into fellowship with God. Right? It is coming into union with Emmanuel in the corporate people, the body that Christ has brought into that fellowship with God, the ones whom he has come to be with and to bring unto God. That is the church, the church of the living God. And so that's what we're going to begin looking at 
this morning. That means that we are starting to look at what will be the last means of grace that we cover in this, in this study. It is not the last means of grace that I could mention, um, but it is the last one we're going to look at. And I believe next to the word of God, this is the most important means of grace that God has given to his people. Now, there's a phrase, it's actually a title of a book uh, that goes like this, uh, the church is bigger than you think. Uh, often that phrase is used to communicate to people that there will be more redeemed saints in glory than what you think there will be. You guys know the joke about the Baptist, right? No? I see Matt Plocker shaking his head saying, no, Seth, don't tell any jokes. You're not good at it. No, I'm not. That's why I wrote it down. But you know the joke about the Baptist. A man died and went to heaven, and Peter, at the gates, welcomed him in and decided to give him a tour. And as they passed along the road, they came, a, they came by one room with a group of people laughing and drinking wine, being kind of loud. And the man asked Peter, well, who are these people? And Peter says, oh, those are the Lutherans. Right? If you know anything about Lutherans, you know they like to drink. That's part of the joke. Well, Peter and this man uh, kept walking and came to another room with the door open, and there were people inside eating cookies and drinking lemonade. And the man asked Peter, well, who are these people? And Peter says, oh, well, those are the Presbyterians. Oh, okay, Presbyterians. Well, then they came to a room where the door was shut. And Peter motioned to the man to keep quiet as they walked by. And after they tiptoed past the room, the man asked Peter, well, what's that all about? And Peter said, oh, that's where the Baptists are. We have to be quiet because they think they're the only ones here. Right? And, uh, well, I think personally that's the worst joke ever told about Baptists. Because in reality, the reality is everyone who gets to heaven becomes a Baptist. Right? So, all your theology gets fixed whenever you're in the presence of the Lord. Like someone asked about R.C. Sproul, is he still a Presbyterian? And I said, no, he's a Baptist, sure enough. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I, I know that Baptists have tons of theology that have to be worked out as well, and not all of you would identify as Baptists, and that's okay. But uh, anyway, well, that's what most people mean by the phrase, uh, the church is bigger than you think. Uh, they they use that to indicate some belief that there will be more people in heaven, more people in glory than what we now think. Well, today I, I want to borrow that phrase, but I do not want to use it in that sense. When I say the church is bigger than you think, I mean that the church is more important than you think. What I mean by the church is bigger than you think, I mean that next to the word of God, the church is the most important means of grace that God has entrusted to his people. In fact, it is the very means that is comprised of his people and the way in which we are going to march home to glory. 
So when the church functions as she should, Christ people will experience the most growth in the faith. And that is kind of the main thought that we're going to trace out as we look at the church as a means of grace. Now, one reason I think most people do not recognize the significance of the church in our day is simply because they do not understand what the church actually is. And so, as we begin to look at the church as a means of grace, we want to start simply by answering the question, what is the church? And to help us do that, there are four things that I want to point out from what Jesus says about the church in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. I thought we were going to get through all four of them. We're only going to get through two of them today. We'll come back next week to finish the next two. So number one, the first point we're going to look at today is the fact that the church is what Christ himself is building right now in this world. The church is what Christ is building in this world. And then secondly, the church is the people of God. The church is the people of God. Next week, we're going to come back to look at the church as the agent of heaven on earth and the church that is built on the foundation of Christ. So as we get into this, would you pray with me and ask for the Lord's blessing? Our Heavenly Father, we, we do recognize that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The manner in which you go about glorifying your name is not the manner that we would necessarily choose. But Father, I thank you that you are higher and above and beyond our ways and our puny and limited thoughts. God, I thank you you are committed to glorifying your name in this earth. Or you are committed to seeing the glory of the Lord cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. And we see that even now working itself out in the establishment and the spreading of your church. But I thank you for every illustration we have of your light penetrating the darkness and leaving behind it a, a, a body of light, a body of believers or to represent you, to live for the glory of your name where you've placed them. God, that is, that is Oak Ridge. Lord, we've been placed here for 140 years by your grace. And uh, Lord, I would pray that we would continue on for many, many more years into the future continue to be a beacon of the gospel light in this community, Lord, a body of believers committed to calling upon your name in holiness with joy and reverence, clinging to Christ and holding fast to one another as we walk as pilgrims home to glory. And I pray that you would continue to establish this local church body upon the truth of your word and allow Jesus Christ to be the air that we breathe to be the light that we shine and the testimony that we give to the world around us. Lord, we pray for those who are grieving among us. 
those who are suffering or those who are walking through trial, those who are facing very difficult times. Father, I pray that your church would be the minister of your grace to these believers in this time. Let our hearts be made whole by the word of the gospel. Let our hope be founded surely upon the only foundation that will last and endure, the foundation of Jesus Christ, our rock. Lord, I pray for these believers that as they walk through these difficulties that you would enable them to continue walking in faith or that no matter what happens, they will lift their hands and praise you as the God who gives and the God who takes away. Lord, may they have the strength in their souls to declare even in those times, blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we pray for those who are not among us. We ask that you would heal them, restore them, bring them back into the worship and the fellowship of the church here. Father, we pray for your blessing to be on this time this morning. May you be with us. May your power be known among us. May your spirit fill us and give us clear minds and pure hearts to receive your truth. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first point we're going to look at this morning from this text is that the church is what Christ himself is building in this world. The most fundamental reality concerning the church that we need to take to heart is that the church is being built by Jesus Christ. It's not the result of apologists doing the work of apology, not apologizing for Christ, but defending the faith to the lost. The church is not the result of faithful pastors or missionaries going about doing the work of the ministry, sharing the hope of the gospel. All of those efforts are secondary. The primary builder of this thing that we call the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice Here in verse 18 of Matthew 16, Jesus declares boldly that he will build his church, saying to Peter, I will build my church. Now that's a declarative statement that is stating a fact. Jesus Christ will do this. It's stating something that he will be doing in the future. He will be building his church. And Jesus Christ will always be faithful to his word. Now, in the context, we notice that there are certain things that had to happen before Jesus, as the Messiah, could begin the work of building his church. Or I'll rephrase that and say continue the work of building his church, and you'll understand why I say that in a minute. Before the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of the new covenant could be put on display through the church, other things had to be accomplished First, Christ, the builder of the church, first had to do the work of redeeming the church. Now, we didn't read this verse, but that's clearly what Jesus tells us in verse 21 of Matthew 16, where Jesus tells us that as the Son of Man, the one who came to be the Savior of sinners, 
he first had to suffer in their place before he could build his church. He had to be rejected by the religious leaders of the Jewish people. He had to be killed and enter fully into death in order to fully identify with those whom he came to save. He had to enter fully into death in order to ransom a people for himself out of death. And then before he could start building the church in the promises and the hope of the new covenant and in the fullness of his power and glory, Jesus Christ, the one who died, also had to be raised again from the dead. Only then, by the power of Christ's resurrection, would the gates of hell be unable to prevail against the church. Now, he says the gates of Hades here, death, hell, whatever you want to put in that spot. I know that there are many who debate exactly what Hades means. Let's just put death in that spot. The gates of death will not prevail against his church. What he means when he says that is that those gates of death will never be able to clamp its door shut around his people again. Right, because Jesus Christ, as the Holy One who entered into death on their behalf, what did he do to the gates of death when he rose again from the dead? He burst them open. He shattered them, didn't he? Right? That's the picture of Samson taking the gates of the city and ripping them up and planting them on the hill as a token of his victory over that city. That's what Jesus Christ has done with the gates of death. He has ripped its gates open, and those gates will never prevail to hold his people inside of them again. He's utterly shattered those gates. You know what's prophesied of Christ in Psalm 24? We see that picture of Christ ascending as, or excuse me, Christ ascending to heaven as a victorious and conquering Lord of glory. And when he gets to the gates of heaven, he commands those gates to open to him, right? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That's a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the authority of his victory, as he commanded those ancient doors of heaven to open for him and his people, What did they do? They obeyed his command. Now, the reason why Jesus could command the gates of heaven to open for himself and for his people is because he obliterated the gates of Hades that was keeping his people from entering. Right. This is the glory of the work that Jesus Christ has done in bringing the gates of Hades to nothing. And all of that had to be accomplished before Christ could begin the work of building his new covenant church. Now, as we think about that, nearly 2,000 years on, nearly 2,000 years after Christ's resurrection and 2,000 years after these words were spoken, what do we find? What do we find throughout the world? Well, we find that Christ has been true to his word and he is, in fact, building his church, don't we? In fact, we find that Jesus Christ is keeping his word everywhere in this world. And everywhere where there is a local expression of his church in this world, it stands there as a testimony to the power and the glory of our risen Jesus Christ. 
This is the first thing that we need to realize about the nature of the church. If we're ever going to appreciate what the church is and why it's so important, we have to understand this about its significance. The church is the work that the glorified Christ is doing in the world right now and everywhere where Jesus Christ plants a local expression of his church, it is a testimony to his great glory and power. We can go further and say that right there where that local church is planted, it is not only a testimony of his power, but it is also a testament to his rule and his reign that he has now received in glory. This is what we see, for example, in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3. Just read along with me as I read this. Starting in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now before I move on to the next verse, wait. You need to understand something about the New Testament's comment on those, on those verses. Most people, when they, read that, when they read those verses, they think that they are waiting for some future day where Jesus is going to return and begin to establish his rule and reign the way that these verses describe. But that is not what the New Testament tells us. The New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that even right now, when the Son of God ascended into glory, the Father told His Son to sit down at His right hand while the Father makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. That is happening at this moment. That's not something that we're waiting to happen in the future. Right. It is happening right now. Now one day it will come in its fullness and it will be glorious and it will be majestic and it will be so other than anything we could have imagined. But even right now, you've got to understand that the Father is extending forth the scepter of His Son at this moment. And the church being established in this world is a testament to that reality. You don't follow me there, do you? You got questions? Well, you can talk to me about them later. <laughs> Listen to verse 3. It is, when, it is when the father tells his son, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Then verse 3 says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's the church. Don't you volunteer freely under the rule and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ? Don't you freely give yourself over to the Lord Jesus as the one who has died and risen again and is now ascended on high? Isn't that your motivation for giving yourself over to God that you come before God in the name of Jesus Christ and you willingly give over all of your life in service to this king? That's what the church is built upon, that willingness, that, that willingness to give ourselves in devotion to the King of glory. And what Psalm 110 tells us is that where that is established in the world, where there are a people who are willingly given over to the Son, right there the rule and the reign of the Son is being extended into the world. His scepter is going forth, and even, even there, guys... He is ruling in the midst of his enemies. 
I don't have this one up here, but Revelation 12.10 makes this clear. And I just want to turn there briefly. You don't need to turn there, but if you want, that would be helpful. Revelation 12, verse 10. You guys know the context of Revelation? Well, most people don't. Most people don't read Revelation because it's so confusing. Um, In chapter 12, we have the birth of Messiah, right? We have the birth of Messiah. We have the dragon sitting at the, the feet of the woman ready to devour the Messiah. And we saw that actually play out in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was born, who was right there waiting to kill him? It was the arm of Satan, right? Being manifested through Herod, right? sending forth to Bethlehem to slaughter all the babies that were two years old and under. That's what we see pictured here, that the devil was doing everything he could to undermine and overthrow the coming of Messiah. But once Messiah came, it says in, in chapter 12 that he was ascended up into heaven. He was caught up into glory. Now, what is that talking about? That's talking about the resurrected Christ going up into heaven, heavenly glory. Now, it's at that time, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. It's not saying, Now the kingdom and the power and the authority of our God and his Christ will come. It says it has come. And when has it come? It's come at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it gives the reason, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. This is the glory of the ascension of Christ. There is no longer an accuser in the presence of God who will accuse us day and night before him. Think about that. If Satan were to go up into heaven the way he did with Job and begin to lay our sins and our failures out before the Lord, who is he accusing us to? He's accusing us to the Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain for those sins, who's been risen in victory, who is seated on the throne. The devil's not up there accusing us anymore. He's down here. He's on the earth. He's accusing us to us, but he's not accusing us to God. The rule and the reign of Christ Jesus has already come. According to Revelation 12, I should hear some amens to that. Yeah. You should know the joy of the reality that you're not waiting for Jesus Christ to reign someday. You are living in and under his reign even now. Do you understand that? If that's not true, you have no hope and no comfort to live life in this world. You can pray all you want, but Jesus doesn't have the power to do anything. Now, that's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, he's seated on the throne in glory, and one day he will bring the fullness of his reign to bear upon this world. Now, this means, as I've already mentioned, that we're not waiting for Christ to return in some future reign of glory before he begins to reign as king. His reign is being manifested in the world right now and is being put on display in the building of his church. Now I go on on this point. Are you guys with me? Can you come with me if I go on a little bit more on this? Everywhere that, everywhere that King Jesus extends his royal scepter, he plants a local expression of his church as a marker that these lands now belong to him. 
It's like the kings in the ancient Near East. When they would go to war, do you know what they would do after they conquered their enemy and took dominion over their enemy's lands? Do you know what those kings in the ancient Near East would do? They would set up statues of themselves at the borders of those new lands. And what that was is that was a testament to everyone who came upon that border that these lands now belong to the king whose image this is. Right? Well, that's what the local church is, guys. The local church is to be built up unto a full expression of the maturity of Christ, Ephesians 4. We are to be a living expression of what Jesus is like corporately together. And when Jesus establishes a church, it is the Lord establishing his image in his church, saying, these lands now belong to me. When you enter into this area, you are entering into my domain. I get excited by this. That is what Jesus is doing when he plants a new church, a new local expression of his glory in this world. He is manifesting to all the world and to all the spiritual forces in the heavenly places that he has now taken dominion in that area and he has claimed those lands as his own. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus said, even if that local expression is only two or three believers, even there, Jesus says, there is a church. And in that church is an expression of Christ's kingly reign. That church is, in essence, proof that even now Christ is reigning in Zion and he is plundering the lands of his great enemy and taking by force what is rightfully his. I love that picture of Jesus. That's what the church is. Universally and for our experience with the church locally, in its essence, the church is the evidence and testimony to the world and the devil and all demons and sinners that Jesus Christ is very much alive. He is reigning as king in heaven and his rule is presently being manifested through his people. Now, do you know what our problem is when we hear something so glorious as this? Our problem is that we don't see the church like this. We don't see the church the way God sees the church. And that is to our shame. We suffer because of that. I wonder, is this what comes to mind when you think of the word church? Do you think of the glorious reign of Jesus Christ in heaven? Do you think of the conquering power of the Lord of glory? Do you, do you think of trophies of God's grace that have been taken over by him and have now been gathered together as a testimony to his great power, his great might, his salvation, his glory, his majesty, his splendor. Does the church mean that to you? If it doesn't, then you're missing it. You know, so often, especially in dark times, people struggle to believe that God is still near and that Christ is still working. But beloved, when you look around 
at this world and you see what God is doing in this world outside of our little bubble, outside of our little context, outside of America. Yes, God is working outside of America. Isn't that amazing? When you look outside of our bubble, you, you have every reason to take courage and to take heart. Everywhere that we look, we find gatherings of Christ's people left behind in nations where Jesus is claiming, this now belongs to me. I mean, think about it. All over Africa, right? Not just Middle Africa or Southern Africa, but Northern Africa. Jesus Christ has his church in Northern Africa. That is an expression of, of Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. What's the proof of that? Look around at the world. By that same authority, Jesus has planted multiple churches, even in the most hostile areas. Think about India. Think about China. Think about North Korea. Think about Japan. Think about Mexico. Think about Canada. Think about... And anywhere in South America, anywhere in this world, there is a presence of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have every reason to take heart and to know that Jesus Christ is working right now. And the church is indeed bigger than we think. Now, many implications flow from that, from that reality, but one of the most important is this. If the church is what Christ is building in this world, if that is where his focus is, if that's where his power is being manifested and his reign is being upheld and, and, and declared to all the world, if the church is what Christ is building in this world, then we can determine how much Christ is working in our lives by the quality of our relationship to his church. If Christ is building the church, if that's where his energies are devoted, if the Spirit of God is continuing to knit the hearts of the saints together in love and make them into a temple for God's dwelling by the Holy Spirit, then we can gauge the level of our spirituality by comparing what our relationship to the church is like against what it should be. We can ask ourselves, is the focus of our Lord... Our focus as well. Can we say in honesty, when we sing that song, I love thy kingdom, Lord. The place where thy glory dwells. Can we say with honesty that, yeah, I do. I love. I love your kingdom, Lord. I love your church. And I'm devoted to her because I'm devoted to you. Can you say that? Now, I know the church is not perfect, right? Amen? None of us in the church are perfect. But when we sit around and deride and mock and complain about the people of God who are gathered in the church, and, and look, let's not get all pious here. We all know that we do this, right? You complain about me. I complain about you. We complain about each other. We complain about churches outside of Oak Ridge, right? Though we want to think we got it all together, Oak Ridge does not. And yeah, every other church out there does not either. But 
When we sit around and we deride and mock and complain the people of God, you understand that our derision is not so much a comment about the church as it is a statement about the Lord who is building the church. What you're saying is, Lord, you're doing a poor job. Look at those people, Lord. Look at them. That's your church? Jesus says, yeah, that's my church. And I'm not ashamed to identify with her either. Why are you? We are no better in that case than Ishmael mocking and making fun of Isaac, the seed of promise. Now, we know the church is not perfect, and God knows that the church is not perfect. In fact, I would say that God, Christ, keeps cracks visible in the stones that he places in this edifice called the church so that we would always remember that the glory and the power for her sustenance and well-being does not come from her, it comes from him. We're going to see our weaknesses, we're going to see our failures, we're going to see those cracks magnified by the Spirit of God, but it's all to the end that Christ gets the glory and we get none of it. Christ will build his church. Christ will build his church. So the first marker of the nature of the church is simply that the church is what our resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus is building in this world. Now the second point for today is that Christ's church is the people of God. This feels like a a big subject to get into for 10 minutes, but... Let's do it. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, when we hear that word church, there are many things that can come to our minds. We might simply think of a church as a church building, right? I'm going to church. I'm at the church. Where are you? Well, I'm here at the church. We could think of it as a building, a place that we go to where the church gathers. Or we might think of the church as something that belongs to the New Testament over against something that belongs to the Old Testament. So like in the Old Testament, God was building the people of Israel. In the New Testament, God is building the church. A lot of people think that. Well, I think it's important to remember that, first of all, in response to that first option, Church is a building. The church is not a building. The church is a people. You don't have to be in a building in order to be with the church. And just because you're in a building that, that, that has the name church on it does not mean that you are gathering together with the people of God. And so the church is not a building. It's a people. But secondly, the church that Christ is building is not an entirely new work that he's doing. It is actually the continuation of an old work that he has been doing since the fall of humanity into sin. Yes, where am I getting that from? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) It's interesting to note that the Gospel of Matthew is the only Gospel account where we find the word church. that interesting? Only in the Gospel of Matthew do we hear Jesus using the words church, or anyone else for that matter. 
In Matthew, it's used two times. It's used in chapter 16 and it's used in chapter 18. We're going to look at what it says in chapter 18 at another point. But that's significant for helping us understand the true nature of the church that Christ is building. Because the Gospel of Matthew is the one Gospel account that is clearly written to a Jewish audience. Why is that significant for understanding what Jesus means by the church? Well, when we hear the word church, because in the Gospel of Matthew, because it was written primarily for a Jewish audience, we need to be asking ourselves, what would a Jew have thought of when he or she heard Jesus using this word to describe what he was going to build? When Jesus says, I will build my church, what would a Jew have thought of with that word? Right? Or better yet, we could ask, um, what would have come to the minds of his disciples when they heard him say, I will build my church? What would, what would Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew, what would they have been thinking of when they heard Jesus say, I'm going to build my church? Well, the word church, let me give you just a brief understanding of what the word in itself means. The word church itself is made up of two words in Greek. One comes from the word that means to call, and the other one comes from a word that means out or out from. So if you just took a literal, literal rend rendering of that word, it would be those who are called out, right? Now, the idea behind that word is, is simply a, a group of people. The church is a group of people who are summoned or called to convene or assemble together. That's all it is, in essence. It is a group of people summoned and called to convene or assemble together. Now, when a Jewish person in Jesus' day would have heard him use this word to describe the people that he was going to be building or gathering together in his name, their minds would have immediately connected what Jesus was saying here to the Old Testament. And that's because the word that Jesus uses here for church is one of the two main words that is used to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. In the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it's ekklesia, and it translates the Hebrew word kahal. So kahal, the people, the congregation, the assembly, it's translated in, the, in Greek by ecclesia. And so, this is why we find Stephen using the word church in reference to Israel when he speaks of them in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Referring to Moses, Stephen described the people of Israel whom he had led in the wilderness as the congregation. That is simply the Greek word for church. Often in the Old Testament, you find the gathered assembly of Israel identified as God's church. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, Moses is writing to Israel and he says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me. Now, that is the verbal form of the noun where we get the word church from. Assemble them to me. The assembly was the people of God not only gathering together, but it's important to notice in this verse, the assembly was the people of God gathering together in order to come to him. Right? It's that connection, not only with each other, but with the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 16, it says, This is according, uh, Moses continuing to write, This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly. Right there in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word for church. The day of the assembly. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 8, this one's really significant. It says, So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God. Now notice what it's, what's partnered there. You have the sight of all Israel. All Israel is being discussed here. And then all Israel is defined by the assembly of the Lord. That again is the word we find there in the Greek version, the same word for church. It's interesting, actually, in the Old Testament, a person's presence and involvement in the church of God was definitional of that, that person's relationship with God himself. Read that again. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, a person's presence and involvement in the church of God was definitional of that person's relationship with God himself. Now, are you guys following me so far? No? No. Some of you said no. All right, so here's what I'm pointing out. In the Old Testament, there are multiple times where the word church is used, okay? Church is not a new word. Jesus didn't make it up. It didn't come out of nowhere. It has a historical context. It has a biblical context. So when you hear the word church, when Jesus uses the word church, there is a scriptural background to that word that he is using. And if we're going to understand what he means by the word church, we have to understand the background from which it's coming, right? That's what I'm trying to get at. Now, what we see in Deuteronomy, as I said, in Deuteronomy 4.10 uh, and Deuteronomy 18.16 and 1 Chronicles 28.8, we see these places where the word church is being used and applied directly to the people of Israel. Okay? So the people of Israel as the people of God are identified as the church of God. That's my point. Now, it's interesting that in the Old Testament... A person's presence or involvement in the church of God was definitional of that person's relationship to God. So, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, or excuse me, not 13, verses 1 to 3. In Nehemiah 13, 1, we find here the language identifying the gathering of Israel as the assembly of God. Now, the problem is here, they found that there were some Ammonites and Moabites who had gathered together in the assembly of God. And as they were reading the law of God, they discovered that that actually was against God's will. That it was not permissible for an Ammonite or a Moabite to enter into the assembly, the corporate gathering of the people of God, because they refused to give Israel help whenever they were wandering in the wilderness. And Balaam and Balak were cursing them, right? And God turned their curse and. Uh, uh, Balaam's curse into a blessing. But then you get to verse 3, and it says, Therefore, as they heard this, and they reasoned among themselves that, oh, this is not the Lord's will, and yet we find foreigners among us here in the assembly, in the church. Verse 3 says, Therefore, they responded by excluding all the foreigners from Israel. Now you see the connection there between being part of the assembly of God and being part of Israel. If you are excluded from the assembly of God, you are excluded from the people of Israel. You do not belong to the Lord. 
You see the same thing in Micah chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where it's not only identifying the assembly of God with the people of Israel, but also saying that if you are cut off from the assembly of God, you are cut off from God's people. Micah chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, read along with me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. Judgment coming upon Judah, right, for their sins. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, to the apostate, he apportions our fields. Horrible judgment. Where where God gives those who do not belong to him the inheritance that ought to belong to his people. Wretched judgment. Verse 5, therefore, here's the summary, here's the conclusion of it all. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So to be cut off from the assembly of the Lord is an act of judgment from God. And it means that you have been cut off from his people. In fact, this one's interesting. I don't mean to go on and on, but... Lauren brought it up this morning in our call to worship from Psalm 22, 22. It's interesting that it was prophesied to the people of God that they would have fellowship with the Messiah within the church of God. That is within the corporate setting, within the assembly of his people. That is where they would find fellowship with the Messiah. Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation or the assembly. I will praise you, or I will sing your praise. Now, these are the passages that would have been flooding the minds of a Jewish person reading Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18. Because they were very familiar with the Greek version of the Old Testament, that was the most commonly read version of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, even among the Jews. When they heard Jesus use that word ekklesia, their minds would have been going throughout the Old Testament and remembering the passages over and over again where the Lord identifies Israel as his ecclesia. And they would have immediately connected the word church in these passages, the meaning that is found there, to the meaning of Jesus' word in Matthew 16. It's no accident, in other words, is what I'm trying to get at. It's no accident that Jesus uses this same word from the Old Testament to identify the people that he would be gathering to himself. What Jesus is pointing out to us is that the congregation of those who believe in him as the Messiah, they are the continuation and the fulfillment of those who were those who in the Old Testament were eagerly waiting for the arrival of Messiah. So in the Old Testament, you have the church of God, those who were waiting for Messiah to come. They were waiting upon the Lord in faith. They were the true people of God. Go read Romans 9. And in the New Testament, you have the continuation of the people of God in those who are holding fast to the Messiah who has been revealed. So you've got those waiting in anticipation and those now waiting on the other side of Revelation. But they are both belonging to the same people of God. And so the church in the New Testament under the Lord Jesus Christ is the continuation 
of what God began to do in the nation of Israel in redeeming a people for his own possession. And so you understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16, 18. If you or I have any desire to belong to the people of God, if we would be united to those whom God is saving for himself, then we must be properly united to his church. If you would be in the assembly of the Lord, the place where the Lord's special presence dwells, then you must be gathered together with those whom Christ has gathered as his church. If you or I have any desire to have fellowship with God or with his Messiah, then it will only take place as we enter into his fellowship expressed in a local church body. Hold on to these ideas because we're going to be building on them in the weeks to come. The apostles understood exactly what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 16. Let me just give you a few passages where we find the apostles identifying us as the church of God. They took this church that Jesus used and they, they also transferred it over to the new covenant community of those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. For example, in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, local gatherings of believers in Christ are called the church. It says, when you come together as a church, that's talking to believers in Corinth. When you gather together, when you do this together, you are the church of God. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two, it identifies this gathering of believers as the church of God. Very significant phrase if you trace it through the Old Testament. Showing the continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Paul even goes on so far to say that the church is the place where God is now abiding as his temple. You, you know that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, the church is, is now the dwelling place of God among his people by the Spirit. And then you see in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 25, that in the church, in the gathered corporate assembly of believers in Messiah, God is pleased to dwell among them in a very special way, a way that even unbelievers can recognize God is among you. See that in verse 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man comes in, his heart is disclosed. He will fall on his face and worship God, declaring, God certainly is among you. Then in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, we, we are the church of the living God. Writing to Timothy and describing the church of God in Ephesus, made up of mostly Gentile believers. The New Testament church is the completion and the fulfillment of the Old Testament church. And therefore, the church in the New Testament is the continuation of the church in the Old Testament. Now, let me clarify something because I know I'm going to get a question. To say that the church is the completion and the fulfillment the New Testament church is a completion and fulfillment of the Old Testament church is not to say that the church in the New Testament has replaced Israel. Okay? Rather, the church is the fulfillment 
of what Old Testament Israel was called to be. So the church in the New Testament is the end goal that God always had in mind for his Old Covenant people. So the church is not a parenthesis in history. Okay? The church is not something that God decided to do when the Jews all of a sudden rejected Jesus. The church is the culmination of thousands of years of God working among the Jewish people to bring about a people for his own possession in the Messiah. Jesus is not the Gentile Messiah in a different way than he is the Jewish Messiah. And the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is not some different people that is distinct and separated from the people of Israel. Don't you remember in the early days in the founding of the church, who made up the block of the foundation of the church membership in the beginning years? Were they not all Jewish? Thousands of Jews converted to Christ because they saw in Jesus the reality of their Messiah. They saw in Jesus the fulfillment and the completion of what God had been making known to them through the law and through the prophets for hundreds of years. They saw in Jesus, wow, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the true Israel. He's the Messiah. I need to go join to him if I'm going to belong to God's people. That was the message of John the Baptist. Don't think that because you're children of Abraham, you're good with God. You too must repent. You too must come to Jesus the Messiah if you're going to belong to him. To say that the New Testament church is the fulfillment of Israel is not to say that the New Testament church has replaced Israel. It's to say that it is the completion of what Israel was designed to be. Now, sadly, throughout history, most Jewish people have refused to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And even sadder, you have movements, modern-day movements, that border on the heresies of Galatians 3, or the book of Galatians, where where you're you're telling Gentile believers, you've got to become Jewish if you're actually going to belong to the people of God. That's a denial of the gospel. That's saying that what Jesus has done in the new covenant did not yet fulfill all of those types and shadows that were in place in the old covenant. They were nothing but mere pictures of what the reality was going to be when the Messiah came. Uh, I'm not going to keep going on that, but I need you to understand this. If you are going to grasp the real weight and the importance and the significance of the church, if you're going to understand how important this gathering is, then you have to understand that this gathering is the fulfillment of what Jesus Christ has been doing for thousands of years. You are God's purpose. You are God's plan. You are the expression of the power and glory of Jesus Christ. You are the people that God is redeeming for his own possession. You are that to one another, but you are that more more importantly to God. How should that affect the way that we treat each other then in the church? How should that impact the way that we think about our relationship to the body of Christ? Is it then something that we can withhold for like a year and a half and think we're still going to be spiritually okay? How fair is that to your brothers and sisters who are gathering here faithfully? 
How fair is it for you to withhold the blessing of your presence and the giftings that Christ has given you? How fair is it for you to withdraw from them? I'm jumping ahead of myself like three messages. But that's where we're going, guys. No, all the promises of God. Let me get back to this union of Jew and Gentile in the church, the fulfillment of God's purposes. All the promises of God in the Old Testament were not intended exclusively for the people of Israel. Do you know that? All the promises of God given to his people in the Old Testament were also including the Gentiles. Don't you remember Isaiah 49, 6? It's too light a thing, the Lord says, for you to redeem Jacob, to bring back the lost offspring of Israel. I will make you a light to who? The nations, the Gentiles, those who don't belong to Israel, so that my salvation will spread throughout the entire earth. You see that there. There's a union of Jew and Gentile in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this church that Jesus is building, we find the true expression of God's church, the fulfillment of what God called Israel to be. You can see that more clearly in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to go through that other than to say that Gentiles there are identified as fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs with who? Fellow heirs with who? The Jews. Jewish believers. Fellow members of what body? The body of God's people that has spanned the ages. Fellow partakers of what promise? The promise of Christ. It all included Jew and Gentile sinners who needed to be redeemed for the glory of God. So when we ask the question, who is the church? What is the church? Well, first of all, we see that the church is something that Jesus is building in this world. It's not something we are building. It's not something that we have to maintain either. It is something that the Spirit of God is building in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then we ask the question, who are the people who belong to the church. What is the church in the sense of who are these people? Jesus responds, these are the people of God. These are the people of God. Now in closing, what does this mean for us? Let me just give us short, short reading here. What does all this mean for our understanding of the church that Jesus Christ is building? Just a few thoughts. First of all, it means that God has no saving dealings with anyone who is not brought by Christ into the fold of his church. God has no saving dealings with anyone who is not brought by Christ into the fold of his church. You can go read that in John 10, 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep. I must bring them also. They will, be, they will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Those who are united under the shepherding hand and arm of Jesus Christ, they are those who have been brought together into the one fold, the church of the Lord Jesus. So God has no saving dealings with anyone who is not brought by Christ into the fold of his church. Secondly, it means that if we 
are removed from the community of faith called the church, that is a sign of God's judgment upon us. That what is being signified, and I'm thinking here of excommunication, when the church excommunicates a sinning member, what is that signifying? That's signifying that the judgment of God is resting upon that person. It's a sign of God's judgment upon that person, and what is being signified in time will one day be true for all eternity if that person does not repent of sin and turn and be restored to Christ in faith and be restored to his people. So if we're cut off, if we are removed from the community of faith called the church, that is a sign of God's judgment upon us, not his favor. Thirdly, if we remove ourselves from the fellowship of God's church in Christ, we are effectively cutting ourselves off from the blessing of God's presence, the fellowship of his nearness, and all that it means to be a people in communion with his son. Now, I know there are many reasons why people are, are withdrawing from fellowship in these days. Foremost among them is COVID. What we need to understand is that when we remove ourselves from the fellowship of the church, what we are potentially giving up is far more dangerous than what we are potentially contracting by gathering with the people. Now, I know that's a hard pill to swallow. And I'm not trying to be some ogre up here with a baseball bat and beating you over the head saying, you got to get back into church. But in one sense, I'm spanking you and saying, guys, what are we really holding up as more important? What is your life worth if it is lived in disobedience to the command of God? get more into that in the future. I hope that doesn't scare any of you off. If we remove ourselves from the fellowship of God's church in Christ, we are effectively cutting ourselves off from the blessing of his presence, the fellowship of his nearness, and all that it means to be a people in communion with his son. But, fourthly, if we by grace have been brought by the Lord Jesus Christ to give ourselves up to him and to unite ourselves to him by uniting ourselves to his people, or at least along with uniting ourselves to his people, then we are those who in this world have the full attention, the full power, the immeasurable authority and grace of our God resting upon us. We as the people of the Messiah have all authority in heaven and on earth delegated to us by our king so that we can go forth and do his will no matter who is opposing us. Be he governor or neighbor or family member or friend. We have all authority in heaven and on earth to be about doing our king's business. And as we stand together united as his church, his people, that power and authority and grace rests upon us abundantly. And so we have the full attention of our God. We have the full blessing of our God. 
and we have the blessing of his presence. We're getting more into the importance of the church in the weeks ahead. I pray that you'll continue coming. But for now, let's ask the Lord to bless what we've already heard and help us live in obedience to it. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the great hope we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that it would be helpful and beneficial to all of us. Lord, as we think about Christmas, as we think about the glory of the coming of Emmanuel and we see the fruit of Emmanuel's coming all around us in these local communities called the church, I pray that we would worship you, that we would praise you, that we would adore you, that we would trust in you more fully, that we would walk with you more faithfully. Guide our steps by your word, fill our hearts with your spirit, Lord, and help us give glory and honor and praise to your beloved son, our savior and king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear the benediction from Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 21, excuse me, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And may the Lord give us grace not to refuse his voice, but to live in the fullness of blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. May you go in his peace and may you know his peace more fully. Amen. Amen. Amen.